Episode 203, Brett Ridgway, author of multiple books on mistakes. So happy being behind the scenes for years and not getting up in front of people is honestly probably my biggest mistake. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Brett, all of his books, speaking, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake203. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven, and our guest today is Brett Ridgway. He's a 25-year veteran of the speaking industry. He brings a unique perspective handling the back-of-the-room sales table at more than 150 conferences. He's provided fulfillment services for some of the biggest names in the industry, and he has spoken on many stages uh, as well. He's the author of seven books focused on speakers, authors, information marketers, and event promoters, including, I'm going to mention just three, and you're going to realize Brett is totally in the right place for this podcast. <laughs> One of them is 50 Biggest Mistakes I See Information Marketers Make. Another is Mistakes Authors Make. And then the third is 50 Biggest Website Mistakes. So uh, again, Brett, thank you for being here. We're going to hear your story, and gosh, we're going to have a lot to talk about today. How are you? Well, my pleasure to be with you today, Mark. And, and certainly, I think we can share some some good war stories with our listeners of mistakes that they should avoid, whether they're a, a speaker, an author, or just an entrepreneur in any field. So looking forward to it. Yeah. And uh, I'm as I'm working on my new book here, I'm going to I'm going to take a deeper look through mistakes authors make and, 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 and try to head off. You know, it's good to prevent mistakes when we can, but they're still going to happen. So let's learn from them. And in the spirit of that, Brett, um, Thinking back to the work that you've done, what's your favorite mistake? You know, Mark, I was all prepared this morning to talk about the time that I was supposed to be a guest on a radio show. And it was a weird time. It was like on a Sunday afternoon. I got home from church, got busy doing stuff and just totally spaced it. And I beat myself up for weeks over that, you know, and learned the problems with schedule and all that. But as I was thinking about it more this morning, it's like, you know, honestly, Mark, my biggest mistake is. I know what I've known, and I've known it for like, you know, the good part of 20 plus years. But my biggest mistake is probably not having the courage to step out there on my own and offer to people what I have learned along the way to help them avoid those mistakes. And so, you know, it's about self-confidence and courage and not being in my right mind to step forward and say, okay, Brett, you do have value that you need to add to the world here. And so, you know, being so happy being behind the scenes for years and not getting up in front of people is honestly probably my biggest mistake. So how did you discover that then, Brett? I mean, it sounds like, you know, there, there's a, a part of the story here of, you know, kind of discovering that pattern, kind of noticing it, deciding at some point to take action. Brett, take us through more of that. So, so you know, a little bit of the backstory, Mark. So I, so I got my start in the speaking industry back in 1999 when I was asked to handle the backroom sales table at an internet marketing conference in Las Vegas. And honestly, I didn't even know what backroom sales meant at that time, but I hadn't been to Las Vegas before, so it sounded good to me. And I, and I went out and agreed to do that for a guy. Well, that got to where I started to meet some of the speakers in the info and internet marketing spaces. 
And that led to a formation of a company called Speaker Fulfillment Services in 2003, where we handled the product duplication and fulfillment for a lot of the big names. And so I, I had developed this shtick of, you know, I was the back of the room guy. You know, I was the mysterious behind the scenes guy doing all these things, handling all the money, you know. And I wasn't comfortable being up in front of the room, even though as time went by, I started to, you know, you know, Brett, you do have some things here you need to share and you need to get over your own lack of confidence about being in front of the room and getting up on that stage yourself and doing some sharing or whatever. So I was, I, I finally overcame that hurdle about, you know, 10 years after the fulfillment company had been formed. So I'm going back into the early teens or whatever. And it, it was, it was a journey of self-awareness and self-confidence as much as anything, Mark. And, you know, I would encourage people out there, if you're listening to this and you feel like you have a message you need to share with the world, to, you know, summon up that courage or whatever you want to call it, the fortitude mm-hmm. to share that message with others. And and that could be as a speaker, it could be writing a book. I mean, did, did you feel that way about writing as well? Yeah. Were you kind of holding yourself back? Was there a confidence issue there? No, not so much as a writer, honestly, because it was still kind of a behind the scenes, so to speak, thing. I mean, the first book I wrote was actually about back of the room sales tips that, you know, little things that event promoters could do that would cause them to maybe not have as great a success as they could have at their event. And, and and it was little mistakes, you know, nothing that by itself maybe would derail an event entirely, but the, the accumulation of little in, seemingly insignificant things, you know, added up to where you just didn't get maybe the results that you expected. And so I was always of the mind that, you know, if I'm going to write, and, and I, writing comes fairly easily to me, but uh, it's always going to be what I call bite-sized chunk type thing. So, you know, tips books, quick reads, you know, 100, 120 pages at the most type thing. Now, the mistakes authors make book is a little bit longer than my norm, certainly, but it was one of those things where if you have that message to share, then like your to your point exactly, Mark, figure out what the best way to get that content out there, whether it's as a speaker, as an author, or, or whatever it may be. And, and you can do it in baby steps, so to speak, but mm. share your message with the world. So I, I was going to, it's funny you, you bring up the phrase baby steps, because I, I, I love that strategy, or we could frame it as, you know, go, go, go and try maybe in a low stakes, small audience kind of situation. And Give it a try. Um, what what were your first baby steps of an experiment, if you will, of saying, okay, I am going to get in front of people. Let, let, let me try it and see, oh, is that a mistake or is it something that I can learn from and improve upon? You know, it, it, I was actually forced into it, Mark, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I, was, I was part of a group that had created a, a product called Smart Seminar Marketing. It was all about how to put on live events. And because I was part of that group, they said, you are speaking at our live event, Brett, whether you like it or not. So, you know, prepare a 90-minute presentation about backroom sales and all that. And so it forced me to the forefront. And certainly, you know, as you do anything, you get more comfortable with it over time. I mean, I'm not the world's most eloquent speaker by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I, but it's more about the content you had to share than how good you are with your ums or ers or, or whatever it may be. So I was forced into to the front of the stage. And then because of the people that I had gotten to know in the speaking industry over the years, that did open up other opportunities for me, for people putting on events and say, hey, hey, I'm available now. And honestly, Mark, it, it changes the d- dynamic greatly if you're a speaker 
if you're selling from the platform or whether you're just up there to deliver content only. And I, I was, I had the fallback position of being a content only provider. So at these multi-speaker events, typically you have, you know, speaker pitch, speaker pitch, speaker pitch, speaker pitch, you know. So I would be brought in by the event promoter to provide a buffer talk, you know, talk for 30 or 45 minutes about something, just sharing content, but no pitch involved. And so that and that gave a break to the audience about what they were going to, you know, they didn't, they weren't going to get pitch fest mindset entirely because they were some breaks of content only sessions. And so there was much less pressure on me being in front of the room because I wasn't trying to sell something. Again, that totally changes the dynamics of our presentation, in my opinion. And it's something that I certainly haven't mastered fully yet, but it's something that if you want to be a speaker, you do have to master that skill if you want to be a platform seller. Yeah. And, you know, it seems like that quote unquote fear of public speaking could be broken down into a couple of categories. One is fear of like, do I have anything really worth saying or people, you know, going to be, uh, how, how are people going to react to the content? It could be lack of confidence in that, or it could be lack of confidence in terms of, well, how am I going to come across on stage? Am I eloquent? Do I have a commanding enough persona? Um, wh- which of those fears do you think is is more common or, or people might have both fears? Yeah, I think both to some extent. Now, which is the dominant one? You know, it's hard to say. Um, I mean, people have fear of embarrassing themselves, honestly, and saying something stupid or stumbling over words and all that. And yeah, I mean, you need to remember that by and large, the audience is cheering for you. They want you to succeed. And if you just speak from the heart and and share the content that you have to share, it's about a, a conversation with the audience. It's not about, you know, a monologue or whatever. So, you know, you have people that, you know, they're, they're on your side by and large, honestly. And if you come from the mindset of I'm just giving, it's not about what I can get from this audience. It's about what I can give and share. Then you can build that rapport and have greater success. But it's definitely something, Mark, that the more you do, the more comfortable you will get with it. I mean, I, I, I've spoken at events where I felt like I stumbled all over the place. And it's very hard for me, honestly, to go back and look at a video of a presentation after the fact and critique myself. Uh, but you but you need to get over that, certainly, and, and do that and figure out what you can do to improve. And it's like you said about those baby steps. And your improvement as a speaker is certainly about continual baby steps to get sharper and sharper at your craft. Yeah. And I think as we take those baby steps and we try to review our own work, or let's say if we're working with a coach who can review our work and give us feedback and and help. I mean, I'll come back to a phrase you used earlier about um, not beating yourself up, like whether it was missing, blowing it and missing that radio appearance or making a mistake on on stage. Or have, have, have you, what are your, I mean, have you, I'm making a mistake and I'm trying to ask this question. Have, have you gotten <laughs> better about not, I'm going to not beat myself up for, for that. Have you gotten better, Brett, about not beating yourself up over mistakes? Yeah, I, yeah, I certainly have. And it's one of those things I think, Mark, where, you know, I, I actually realized years ago, and this is probably going back 20 more years, I, I was working for an industrial training company and I was the salesperson. So I was selling high ticket industrial training via the telephone to military bases, power plants, you know, GMs, companies like that. And I, I was, I remember it very well. I was at uh, my girlfriend's place at the time. Now my wife was 38 years, but I was at my girlfriend's house. So I'm going back 38 years. Wow, man, I'm dating myself here. That's good for you. <laughs> but, but anyway, the 
one of our instructors called me up on a Friday afternoon and said, I'm not going to my class on Monday. I quit or whatever. And like, oh, my God, this is the worst thing in the world. What are we going to do? You know, the company's going to collapse or whatever. This is just terrible, terrible. And, and then, you know, as it turned out, the client was willing to reschedule. We sent another instructor in and, and it turned out fine. It's like, you know, these things that happen that you're just killing yourself over, Brett. They're not the end of the world. You know, don't blow things out of proportion. Take it in stride. Figure out what your next logical step is and then get it taken care of. So, you know, yes, I beat myself up over the missed interview because it was like, oh, Brett, you're so stupid. Why did you do that? And, you know, I did everything in my power to make it right and, you know, offer up what I could to promote promoter or the host or whatever but you know i had burned that bridge but he's like all right brett you, you got you just got to move on you mm -hmm. just got to move on and it, mm -hmm. it, the next opportunity will come and you go from there so yeah yeah i mean i think it's a matter of finding a balance of you know reflecting and examining our work and trying to think of how how can i do better next time and then putting it behind us like, i think even sometimes just articulating it to somebody else or writing it in some notes or a journal, maybe we process it and put it behind us as opposed to dwelling on it. Yep. I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, in my position from the back of the mark, I've been able to see mistakes that speakers make and, and others make at event, event promoters and all that. And so, you know, my current mission is to share what I've learned along the way from that back room perspective and being up on stage, but more so from the back room perspective, so that the aspiring speaker can learn, you know, here are, here are mistakes that you may not think that people would make or whatever, but, you know, don't do these types of things. And so, you know, I actually have written a new book. So I'm up to eight books now. And the newest one, the newest one's coming out in March called How to Build a Profitable Speaking Business. And it'll share a lot of war stories and all that about mistakes I've seen speakers make that honestly, literally, Mark, have sometimes cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's like, Wow, you know, how, how could you do this? You know, you're just shaking your head and this lessons learned. Yeah. So let's let's let, let's come back to those big mistakes and I'll I'll update the introduction in, at least in the show notes to reflect eight books and, and link to the <laughs> new one there. Um but uh, I, I want to talk a little bit first about um, about small mistakes. And, and I was going to disclose, I mean, look, I make mistakes all the time. I'm not shy about talking about them. I tried misspelling your name, two to, both of your names, in my show notes originally. I tried putting a second T at the end of Brett. I tried putting an E in the middle of Ridgeway. Yeah. But Thankfully, I caught the mistake sooner than later, <laughs> right? It's better than publishing the episode and, and having your name wrong at that point. So I'm going to embrace the idea of uh, I made the mistake early. If I hadn't caught it, hopefully you would have caught it. Um, and uh, so it goes. Let's you know. I, I appreciate mistake. your diligence, Mark. Yeah, I usually have to say my name is Brett Ridgway, one T, no E in Ridgway. You know, that's pretty much how you have to say it the, your whole life. So <laughs> it would be a mistake otherwise. Goes with the territory. Yeah. So, um, you know, before we come back and talk about some of the big mistakes that that speakers or, or authors might make, um, what I mean, what was your inspiration in general? Um, was, was the first book about mistakes the one um, 50 biggest mistakes I see information marketers make? The first book actually was the view from the back book about the back of the room's tips right. for event promoters. But but the first book about mistakes, I mean, first like book what, what kind of encouraged you? Was, yeah, the, the information marketers books, because we were handling product fulfillment for a lot of people. So we saw how they put their courses together, how they marketed their courses, how they did their bonuses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was just an accumulation of tips, 
based on what I had seen from working with, like I said, some of the big names, people like Armin Moore and Alex Mondozian, Ryan Dice, Mike Filsame. I mean, if you've been in the internet marketing space, you know, they're, they're names that you would know certainly because they've been in the industry for 20 years or whatever. Um, but it was, again, the format, the tips book. So it's quick to consume because, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I think any type of information marketer makes is not making their information as consumable as possible, whether it's in the book form, a home study course, an audio, a video, a membership site, whatever. I mean, there's little things that you can do to make your information more consumable because if somebody does, if you can't even get somebody to read your bookmark, what's the chance of them to coming back to you for a, a follow-up product or service that you may have? You know, about about zero or whatever. So, you know, mistakes certainly across the board for information marketers is, what am I doing to make this as consumable as possible for my reader, listener, viewer, you know, whatever form, modality of, of learning that you're putting out there? Yeah. So, I mean, related to that, is it a mistake to rely only on one format? Like, so what I'm, I've been thinking through with the podcast here, you know, people, some people listen to the podcast. I think more people read books, which is part of my inspiration then for doing a book on this theme. Like, is it important to try to hit people in different formats considering different people consume information differently or they have different yeah with, with, without a doubt mark i mean you gotta look at all the learning modalities that exist out there and some people are visual some people are auditory some people are kinesthetic they want experiential other people are readers and you need to figure out obviously for your target audience what is the primary way they wish to consume information and that should be your primary method of delivering your content but there will be people you lose along the way or, or leave out of the equation because you don't have the ability for them to consume your information, maybe in their preferred format. So, I mean, you can't be all things to all people, but you need to address as many of those as possible so that there are options available to them for consuming your content. Yeah. So on, on that note, what are your thoughts around audiobooks? Is it a mistake to not do an audiobook to reach people who prefer to listen instead of read? Uh, yeah, I, I think it is. And I mean, if you're an author and you're working with a publisher, you need to ask them, certainly, is doing an audio version of this part of the equation? Do you recommend that? Because, I mean, we've seen the massive explos explosiveness of podcasts in the last couple of years. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands upon thousands of podcasts. And, it, you know, it's the way that the auditory learner likes to consume content now. So, if you're a, a content provider, yeah, a podcast is something you need to seriously be looking at doing because it will let you reach more people that wish to consume content in that particular format. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, that, that first mistakes book um, about information marketers, that was uh, written in 2011. I'm curious, do you still see, you know, technologies have changed, there's different platforms, but do you see, are there some of those mistakes that are still being made in 2023? You know, certainly because, I mean, as you said, the the, the industry has changed massively over the last 15 years. I mean, when I founded the fulfillment company 20 years ago, it was all about the big box package, bump value. I mean, so you get that home study course with three manuals and 10 DVDs and 10 CDs all packaged together. It was all about bump value. Well, as the internet took over and it became more a, a delivery method doing things digitally, then yeah, the, the uh, let's just say the home study course went on a, on a massive diet. I mean, so... Yeah, you still have people that do physical products, and I honestly think it's a, a massive mistake to not offer something physical for your content, whether it's a book or a home study course or whatever, because there are still people that 
like the tangible. They like the feel of value. And, you know, it's so easy out of sight, out of mind if you're delivering a digital only product. Um, and you do have the issue of perceived value that you need to deal with. I mean, it's like you sell a home study course and you're going to deliver it digitally only. And it's like, I paid $4.97 for that. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they didn't feel like they got any value because there wasn't anything physical. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, you know, several years ago, I had a client, Mark, that had a home study course that she was selling for $497. And the attractiveness of the digital world caught her eye, as it did many, many, many information marketers. And so she decided to convert it to a digital product at $497. And fortunately, she had the foresight, let's just say, to continue to offer a physical version of her product. But she did that at a higher price, six ninety seven. Hmm. So, as it turned out, eighty percent of her customers were willing to pay the extra two hundred dollars to still get the physical version of the course because they wanted that tangible goods or whatever. So, massive mistake in my mind is going digital only, diving into the digital only pond, and not offering anything physical for your customers because there will be many that still want that physical format. And if you don't have it available, you're going to be missing out on some people that you certainly could impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you know, let, let, let's talk more about books and and, and authors and or uh, publishing. Um, it's it's probably a mistake. It's cheaper to produce a Kindle book. Mm-hmm. Probably a mistake to not also have a physical book kind of along those same lines. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, I'm Honestly, I don't do Kindle books, Mark. I mean, if I, got a book, if I got a book I want to read, I'm going to buy the physical version so I can, mm. you know, easily pick it up and highlight it or whatever. I don't want to consume information by looking at a computer. I mean, if I order a PDF online, I'm going to print the damn thing out because I'm not going to read it on my computer. And it doesn't matter how many pages it is. So, yeah, I, I think it is a mistake to do digital only for your books because, again, out of sight, out of mind, easily. I mean, how many things have you downloaded, Mark, where you downloaded it, maybe even paid for it, and then forgot you had it and yeah. it's just sitting on your computer hidden somewhere? Guilty. Guilty. I mean, and, and, and I think it comes back to the point of different customers have different preferences. I know some people who are um, – they still love reading on paper – for me, a lot of times it comes down I'm in the move a lot. So if I have a paper book sitting there, the paper book might just be in the wrong place. There's there's trade-offs, but yeah, I, certainly, I, certainly with anything. Yeah. But there's also a value in, in that shelf space. So you know, you have those beautiful shelves behind you. Well, if somebody has a book on your shelf or a home study course, you're gonna see it from time to time. And it's a reminder of of what it is and the value that they bring, where you'll never see that digital file on your computer again, probably ever. Yeah. Yeah. And then there are times there are books that I love where uh, I've gotten one of each format, <laughs> the bookshelf that I can lend to somebody else. Uh, or yeah. you know, it's, let's say if an, if it's an author I know, I don't mind supporting them kind of you know doubly by yeah. by, by, by doing both versions. Um, so let, let's talk about some other mistakes authors make. Thinking back to the title of another one of your books, we, we've touched on a few already. Um, what what what's you know what either most common or biggest or maybe an overlap of, of those most yeah, common could, biggest mistakes. Yeah. We touched on it briefly, Mark, but I, I do want to emphasize, I think consumability of your book is critical. And if you're laying out your book, you got to think about what am I going to do to make this book as consumable as possible for my reader. So if you do big blocky long, 
you know, sexist attacks, and there's no break for the eye in terms of a, a charter, a graph, or a pull quote, or whatever, then it's one of those things what will that will hurt the conception of your book. I mean, think about book authors. You know, if I'm if I'm going into a bookstore, or maybe I want to read before bed, I pick up a book and I look at the next chapter, and it's thirty freaking pages long. It's like ah, it's too much work to get through that chapter. I'm not even going to start or whatever. Right. And so, you know, big long chapters are a massive mistake in my mind. I mean, think about who is it? The author James Patterson. I don't know if you ever read any James Patterson, but I, I he's a novelist, right? He's a novelist. I, I, chapter, I don't read novels, but his, his chapters are like two to three pages long. It's like, well, I could read another chapter. I could read another chapter. I could read another chapter. Next thing you know, you read that 30 or 50 or the whole book because it's consumable. It's bite-sized chunks. So definitely think about the consumption of your book as you're having it laid out. Another thing I think, particularly if you're a nonfiction author, Mark, is you got to think about the book primarily should be a marketing tool for you. I mean, if you if you can get the New York Times bestseller, great, wonderful. But, you know, those people are few and far between. Those are the... Tony Robbins and the Joe Polishes of the world that can get that kind of status or whatever. So the book is a lead generator primarily. So what are mm-hmm. you doing within that book to drive them from the book to your website so that you can capture their information and then do follow-up marketing to them? I mean, if you're an author who has any kind of platform whatsoever and you're driving traffic at your speaking engagements or whatever it may be to Amazon to buy your book, you're absolutely crazy. I mean, because it's Amazon's customer, not yours. You make a lot less money because Amazon's going to take their 45% or 55% cut or whatever it is. They don't call you up and say, hey, Brett, you know, Frankie Frisch bought your book and here's his contact information so you can go sell him something. It's their customer, not yours. And you don't have the ability then to include additional information, whether it's a sales sheet or a catalog or a postcard or a bookmark or whatever, in your outgoing shipment if Amazon's handling the whole mix for you. So, I mean, if you have any kind of platform at all, Drive them to your own website, not to Amazon to buy your book. Offer them author signed copies or whatever so that, you know, there's an extra incentive to get it from you because you can't do Amazon's, you know, author signed copies at Amazon very easily. Let's just say that. Right. So as, as you think about trying to help drive people to your site, your website, your platform, your other services, how do you find the balance? Is it a mistake to somehow come across as too salesy? Where like, oh, the book is just self-promotional instead of being focused on the content and also trying to bring people to the website. Because I've read some stuff to me where it felt like it was kind of self-aggrandizing, self-promotional. It was kind of a turnoff to me as a reader. Yeah, I mean, it can be a fine line that you walk. I think the key is to come up with, you know, whether you call it a lead magnet or an ethical bribe or whatever that you're going to mention in the book. They need to immediately recognize that it is something of value, something they would like to receive that would help them out. And so they're willing to make that trade of their name and email address for whatever that content is. Uh, But it's got to be from you got to come at it from a standpoint of you're giving. It's about giving you value and then making it so enticing because it's something that maybe they can't get somewhere else or something that they're, you know, you've created that curiosity factor. It's like, I really want to find out what that's about. So I'm willing to give my name and email address in order to get whatever that content is. So, yeah, you got to walk a fine line sometimes without a doubt in terms of sales versus content, but you need to certainly approach it from a giving standpoint mm-hmm. and then the rest will fall from there. Yeah. Uh, and that's an interesting phrase, ethical bribe. But like I said, it's got to be something of value, not having someone feel tricked into giving up their contact information to get nothing in return. Right. Um, let me ask a question of you that that often gets thrown to me. I've I've gone through 
kind of, you know, traditional publishers and I've self-published and I'm, I'm staying in that direction. How, how do you answer if someone asks you, hey, Brett, I've got this book idea. Is it, should I go through a publisher or, or try to release it myself? You know, that's a tough question. And you need to look at all sides of the equation to determine what's right for you. I honestly considered self-publishing my my newest book because it had been, I had it written or whatever. And it's like, all right, let's get it out there. But after a lot of consideration, I decided to go with the, the person or the company that had published my previous books because I felt the benefits of doing that outweighed the benefits of me self-publishing. Yes, I would have got it out there sooner if I'd self-published. But in the end, it wouldn't have been as good probably as, as the book will be because of the route that I took. I mean, they'll get it into bookstores, which I didn't want to have to mess with that, doing that, that myself. I mean, I mean, you know, they did make me get a professional copy editor for this one, which I had never done in the past, but they made me get a professional copy editor. And, you know, so I had to spend a few hundred bucks there that I wasn't prepared to spend. But it's like, all right, if that's what I got to do, that's what I got to do. But as it turned out, it did make the book a lot better. I mean, so it, it improved the consumability of the book by, you know, making the sentences more just to say legible, for lack of another term. Um, it's that consumability factor again. It, it, that's part of it. And then, you know, if, if you're self-publishing, everything falls on you. So you got to get that cover design, you know, you got to get it edited yourself. You got to work out your back cover copy. You got to work out the interior layout. I mean, there there's so many moving parts to getting a book done. That's like, all right, which of these are my strengths? You know, which of these do I really have the time to do? And which of these am I better off paying somebody else to do because it's not either within my skill set or it's not within my passion or whatever. I mean, I, I know people that, you know, you look at their business and it could be in any number of arenas, Mark. But, you know, you know for example, I know a guy who's a multimillionaire in the Internet marketer. He still loves doing his own graphics. He could pay somebody else all day long to do graphics for his websites or whatever. But it, he loves to do it. It's a passion of his. And fortunately, he's in the position that he can afford to do that, you know, take that time. But it's not the best use of his time, honestly. But, you know, it's his passion. So what do you what are you passionate for? What do you have the skill set for? And what do you have the time to do yourself? I mean, going with the traditional publisher, push to deliver, you know, the release of the book back several months. Right. Uh, I mean, it probably, it probably would have been out in January if I'd done the self-publishing route. But it, again, it wouldn't have been as good as good a book because of the copy editing. So going with the traditional publisher is pushing the release on my website back to March and, and going through the bookstores and Amazon, all that back to October. So trade off in anything in life. And so felt like felt like it was a good trade. Yeah. I, and I would agree. There are there are pros and cons. There are trade-offs. I, I think it's a mistake to use the term self-publishing because I don't do it all myself. Like I agree with you, you know, hiring a copy editor. Hiring someone to do a professional cover, you, you know, you can you can hire an editor to work with you that would probably, you know, in in, in previous experience working with um, a publisher, I didn't really have anyone to collaborate with. They wanted me to basically throw the manuscript at them, and they would do copy editing, they would do proofreading. But yeah. I think sometimes like having, um, you know, a, a quote unquote developmental editor. I mean, you know, there there you could hire a team of people yeah. to work with you or a service that. Is sort of like the general contractor for the book without taking publishing duties, you know, formally. So there's there's a lot of options. Just remember, it's going to probably cost you more money and take more time than you thought initially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Brett, let's talk about the new book and and speaker mistakes and and remind us uh, of the title of of this new book. 
Sure. The new book releasing uh, mid-March on my BrettRidgeway.com website will be How to Build a Profitable Speaking Business. Yeah. And it's all about you know sharing what I've learned in the 25 years behind the scenes and up on stage, but more so behind the scenes, honestly, Mark, about you know what you don't want to do because so much of your success as a speaker or honestly anything in life is about not as is as much about what you do, but even maybe more so about what you don't do. Mm. And I, I I've seen speakers make mistakes that cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it's like one of those, oops, yeah, I don't want to make that mistake. So, you know, it's got to be a lot of war stories and things like that that I that I've seen that are yeah. are really eye opening to somebody who's aspiring to be a speaker, but they maybe haven't been in the industry yet. So, uh, I mean, I want people to still go and read the book, but can you give me one of those really expensive mistakes oh, yeah. that speakers so, make? Yeah, several years ago, we were managing the back room at an event, and the speaker had the situation occur that every speaker dreams of, the true table rush. So they did a wonderful presentation, and people were flooded to the back table, throwing their credit cards at us to order this particular product. And as I recall, Mark, it was a... Uh, it was some type of internet marketing tool, software, or whatever, for creating websites quickly or whatever. So we processed for this particular speaker $375,000 worth of sales in you know, for one 90-minute presentation. Well, as it turned out, there was some kind of bug in the software, and they could never get it to work properly. So one month after the event, every single penny of $375,000 worth of sales had to be refunded to the attendees. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, not only was it a major embarrassment for the speaker, but it, you know, was a killer to the promoter because typically at a multi-speaker conference, it's a 50-50 split between the speaker and the promoter on the back of sales. And honestly, it didn't help my pocketbook any because we take a cut of the promoter's portion for handling the back of the room. Right. But, you know, mm -hmm. it was one of those things where, in my opinion, it is a critical mistake to sell something from the stage that isn't yet fully tested and developed if it particularly if it's a software type product now if you're selling uh, you know if you're selling a course that you're going to be creating in real time you know that's a different ball game altogether but you know testing something or selling something that hasn't proven is a mistake we were at another event a few years after that and the speaker it wasn't on quite the same scale i mean it was a few you know 30 or 40 thousand dollars but you know, they sold some type of program that said, well, this will be ready to go in a week or two. And then invariably, one week turns into two and turns into four. And again, every penny had to be refunded because they just didn't meet their timeline that had been promised to the attendees. So, you know, be very careful what you're going to sell from the stage because, you know, I don't think many of us could afford a $375,000 refund. No. So. <laughs> that software testing is the equivalent of copy editing. And, you know, I mean, one, one advantage of self-publishing and or print on demand is inevitably a book will launch with a typo. I've seen this from professional publishers. And if they haven't printed a huge batch of books already, you can go in and fix that file. Yeah. And maybe only the first handful of copies go out with, with that typo. But yeah, very important. Yeah, to but if you're going with a traditional publisher who's going to publish, you know, five or 10,000 copies of the book, it's like, all right, you know, oops, but yeah, you're not going to reprint all those. So. Yeah. You, you don't want the mistake of a, a garage full of books with uh, a horrible typo, or you need to just process <laughs> it, live with it, and move on. Because look, I mean, is somebody going to say that book was terrible because there were a couple of typos? Probably not. Now, if there's typos on every page, that yeah. could be off-putting. But yeah, look, and nothing, actually, I've known perfect. authors. 
I've known authors, Mark, this, you know, made it a point. It was one of their selling points. Hey, you're going to find some typos in this book. So just email me what they are. And, you know, they'll, they'll, you, you know, he's paying his readers to be his copy editors, essentially. <laughs> you can but offer doing, but, he's, but he's yeah. doing low volume so that he can then make the corrections and move forward. So, yeah, for sure. So our guest today has been uh, Brett Ridgeway. You can find his website at Brett1T, Ridgeway, no E in the middle. So I'll just put a link to that um, in the show notes. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, the new book, How to Build a Profitable Speaking Business. And then uh, tell us also, Brett, before we go, um, your new podcast. Yeah, so my actually my podcast is launching this week, Mark. It's called Spotlight on Speaking. And I've been working hard to get a bunch of interviews recorded ahead of time. So I have about 32 interviews recorded already. But it'll be it'll be releasing with the initial nine episodes, hopefully tomorrow, if there's no blips in the in the schedule or whatever. But it is a podcast where I interview people that I have known in the speaking industry, whether they're either a, a keynoter or a platform seller, or it could just be an entrepreneur who's using speaking as a business building tool. Mm-hmm. So they're not directly selling from the stage, but they have a message they want to get out there and they want to build their credibility as a chiropractor or a attorney or whatever it may be. So it's basically going to ask our, my guest, number one, tell me about your speaking journey. You know, how do you get into the business? Are you a platform seller or a keynoter? Kind of give us your, your backstory, so to speak. And then I have them share some of their keys to success speaking. And then I asked them to bear their soul a little bit and share maybe some mistakes they made along the way that they would advise others not to make. Yeah. So that, that's the basic format. And it's aimed at aspiring speakers and people who want to get into the industry, but they don't really have a freaking clue how the speaking industry really works. Yeah. Well, I hope people will check that out. Um, released as we're recording this mid-January. Um, it'll be available now as you're listening. Um, to this and go check it out. And I don't know, Brett, maybe there's a book in your future about podcasting mistakes. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you mention that. I, I probably at some point in time, you know, right now I was writing down, all right, here's a, I was developing a big assessment checklist for speakers to determine if an event is the right event for them to speak at. It's like, oh. mm. you know, so much of your success is about getting gigs. So how do you determine if a gig is really right for you? And so, you know, all the questions are, that you need to look at and answer to determine if that's, one you should be on. Yeah. Well, I look forward to um, seeing the insights from uh, from the new book. Um, again, Brett Ridgeway, um, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing um, not, not only some of your journey. I appreciate um, you doing that and, and talking about some of the mistakes that hopefully others can learn from and um, either avoid making or learn from it the first time. So, Brett, thank you. Thank you again. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much. Thanks again to our guest today, Brett Ridgeway. To learn more about him, for links to his website and more, look in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 203. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.